0: Section twenty three of Mimic Life. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. The Unknown Tragedian by Anna Cora Mowat. Chapter seven. The Tragedy of Bertram by the Reverend Charles Maturin of St. Peter's, Dublin was the play selected for representation on the ensuing evening the thrilling personations of edmund Kean first imparted to this highly wrought drama a decided but transient popularity the more fastidious taste of audiences at the present day rarely demands its performance mortimer and elma met as usual at rehearsal the anxious questioning eyes she raised to his countenance were withdrawn with an expression of grateful content mortimer's face was unruffled as on the night previous it was fixed almost rigid in its placidity while a scene in which she was not concerned was rehearsed elma sat beside the prompter's table her head leaning upon her hands her eyes half closed she was thinking of her father and of the stormy grief and displeasure which would be conjured up by the knowledge that she could never become the wife of Mortimer. She was asking herself whether waywardness and selfishness were not largely intermingled with her affection for Edmonton. She was hearkening to the reproaches that cried out in her heart with clamorous, accusing tongues, and drowned love's low-voiced, timorous defense. Mortimer stood contemplating her for a brief space— Then he drew near and said, Elma, I cannot bear to see a shadow upon that dear countenance. Look up and smile, for the darkness is passing away. Listen while I play the astrologer and tell you of the fortunate star that shines over your head. It gleams through a cloudless sky and rests above an earthly abode of peace and love where Elma will dwell. "'Do not cast the poor prophet of today "'quite out of your thoughts "'when you stand on the rose-twined threshold of that home "'and look up to that star. "'You speak in riddles,' said Elma, trying to laugh, "'and I am the very dullest of diviners. "'Time will solve the enigma. "'When it does, waste a thought upon one "'who will not be by to remind you.' "'What do you mean?' asked Elma, in a startled tone. You are not going away. You do not intend to leave us No, yes. I cannot tell. Do not, I entreat you. Think of my father of his happiness. I have thought of his, and of yours. I would not secure his with yours and through yours. Bertram and Imogene are called, cried Jock, saucily thrusting himself between the pair and widely grinning with delight at breaking up the conversation of supposed lovers mortimer did not again approach elma while the rehearsal lasted nor did they meet during the rest of the day bertram does not appear until the second act in act one scene fifth imogene is discovered sitting at a table with a miniature in her hand the character of imogene the lady of st aldebrand was not faithfully interpreted by elma's chaste and unimpassioned delineation as she made her first exit at right, she passed by mortimer who had stationed himself where he could survey the audience he is here he murmured in a strange unnatural tone not an atom of coqueterie was infused in elma's nature She did not ask who, as other women might have done, nor did she affect surprise. She had not once turned her eyes in the direction where Edmonton sat, yet she was instinctively, magnetically conscious of his presence. That night Mortimer suppressed all his grandest efforts in the depiction of fierce, frantic, startling, and appalling passions. In the last act, Imogene dies in the arms of Bertram. Mortimer, during this scene in particular, appeared wrought up to frenzy. Cold drops poured from his brow; his face was livid; his whole frame quivered with strong emotion. After the death of Imogene, instead of snatching a sword from one of the knights according to stage direction, drew a dagger from his own girdle the steel glittered for an instant as he pronounced the words bertram has but one fatal foe on earth and he is here then violently plunged into his breast sank upon the ground exclaiming in an exultant voice lift up your holy hands in charity i die no felon death a warrior's weapon freed a warrior's soul elma's eyes or closed as she lay upon the stage she marked not the red current that flowed upon the ground even till it reached her white raiment the actors beheld it and looked aghast the audience saw it with mute horror mortimer lay motionless wiltering in blood the curtain fell his companion stooped to raise him gently gently he groaned you are carrying a dying man. They bore him to the green room and laid him upon a sofa. Is he fatally injured? How came he by a sharp dagger? Was it an accident? Were the whispered queries of pallid lips on every side. Elma knelt by the couch and, with firm and skillful hands, essayed to bind up the wound. He shook his head as he regarded her and said hoarsely, "'Best all surgery!' Then, with a painful effort, he lifted up his hand, felt his bosom, took thence a stained and crumpled paper, and thrust it into her hands. His voice was so faint that she could scarcely distinguish his words, so she bore testimony afterwards, but she thought they were. "'It is annulled. Let the sacrifice not be in vain. Pardon?' Oh, my God, pardon, for her sake. A portion of the audience had rushed behind the scenes and now thronged the apartment. From their midst, Mr. Ruthven pressed forward with tottering limbs and a horror-stricken countenance. When he saw Elma bending over Mortimer with crimsoned hands and garments, he would have fallen had not a manly arm supported him. It was that of Edmonton. "'Mortimer's glazing eyes turned to his aged friend "'and to him by whose arms he was sustained. "'He motioned them to draw near. "'The old man appeared stupefied by grief. "'He seemed incapable of obeying Mortimer's gesture. "'It supplicated him to bend down "'that he might catch the words the dying man could "'with difficulty articulate. "'But Edmonton bowed his head close "'to the pale and stiffening lips.' When he raised his face again, Mortimer had expired. Whether the fatal blow had been deliberately given, or whether it was purely accidental, whether it had been inflicted in a state of uncontrollable excitement produced by his portrayal of Bertrand's stormy passions, none knew to a certainty. If it were but a deed of a willful crime, God alone could judge him. God alone beheld the maddening throes of his loving yet renouncing, clinging, yet despairing spirit, the history of Gerald Mortimer remained unrevealed. If Mr. Ruthven possessed a clue by which it could have been traced, this last shock had so far impaired his memory that the questions of the coroner failed to discover the missing thread. One year after that night Of the tragic horror a thronged audience were collected in the dublin theater royal they had assembled to receive the adieu of one who was dear to them for her mother's sake and honored for her own elma would have glided unmarked from a profession which she had never loved the world forgetting and by the world forgot but for her reverence to the wishes of her father who obstinately punctilious in all professional and public observances the unruly waywardness infirm and choleric years bring with them rendered even his daughter's entreaties powerless he would not allow her to dispense with this formal farewell since mortimer's tragical death mr ruthven's mind was gradually weaned from its fondness for the stage He had slowly consented to Elma's casting off the glittering chain that had long pressed heavily on her unambitious, unworldly heart. Elma had personated the Maid of Merendorf, one of the few characters which she loved to represent for the last time. The curtain had fallen. When it rose again, she was standing where, less than two years before, her mother had sat hearkening to the farewell plaudits which sounded musical even to her dying ears they had no such melody for those of her child a serene joy lighted elma's countenance as with quiet courteous dignity she bowed her adieu no accents passed her lips what had she to say she had done her duty they had rewarded her she thanked them that was conveyed without words the injudicious few were not content and demanded a vocal farewell elma met the request with a smile that softened her denial but gave no hope of compliance and silenced entreaty the descending curtain shut out that gay throng forever and elma rejoiced she was no longer an actress she turned to her former associates her fellow laborers and gave her hand to every one in turn, and spoke a few gentle words even to the humblest. They gather around her, uttering tearful adieus, and blessings, and thanks for past kindnesses. Then her father led her away, and proudly told her she had done all things well. Scarcely had they passed their old threshold, when she was folded to a heart as true as ever beat in mortal breast, and her own leaped joyfully at the fervent whisper the world's no longer mine wholly mine forever the voice was that of leonard edmonton her affianced bridegroom in a parish church near dublin a youthful pastor was preaching his first sermon to a little flock entrusted to his care heaven had gifted him with wondrous eloquence oratory was applied to its highest holiest use persuasion's golden flood gushing from depth of heart and brain rolled o'er the sluggish multitude in turbid wave on wave amain the messenger had chosen for his text behold i bring you good tidings of great joy as manna divine dropped from his lips his face shone almost as a face of an angel, or rather as though the angelic host who inspired his thoughts had shed upon his the reflection of their own radiant countenances. His listeners grew light of heart as they hearkened. Darkly despairing minds received a ray of hope. The sad were comforted, the faint-hearted grew strong, the struggling were touched with peace true laborers tasted of the precious grapes that grew in the vineyard of their lord there were but three occupants in the pew nearest to the chancel at the further end sat an aged man with his face upraised in rapt attention gratefully welcoming those good tidings which had only come to him after the snows of eighty years had fallen upon his head could this be the stage villain at whose portraitures of crime men once trembled his venerable companion at the opposite extremity of the pew was some ten years younger few and pleasant were the lines that time had traced upon his benignant countenance those good tidings had been inscribed upon his heart in youth and they were ever new More than once he turned from the preacher to gaze fondly upon one who sat between him and the other occupant of the pew. It was that young pastor's wife, the old man's newly bestowed daughter. He watched every change of her soft and lovely visage as, now and then, an ample tear trilled down her delicate cheek while the peaceful smile upon her lips seemed indeed not to know what guests were in her eyes which parted thence as pearls from diamonds dropped. Was Elma happy? Had she made a rich exchange? The answer was written upon her countenance in characters so luminous that even the blinded eyes of erring mortals could not misinterpret them. End of Mimic Life by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie